Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to episode number 19 of the Marine Layer Podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're joined by Chris Langan, the Director of Pitching at Driveline Baseball. Chris joins us to talk about a couple of Mariners that spent their off-seasons with Driveline. A couple of Mariner pitchers, to be more specific, that highlights this episode our bullpen preview. We'll talk about those guys with Chris. We'll talk about the rest of the Mariners bullpen after we finish finish up talking with Chris Langan. We'll answer another listener question and we'll close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast here on Monday, March 13th. The World Baseball Classic is going on. I have been I've been so happy getting to watch the, the competitive bat baseball. It's not spring training. It's real competitive baseball on my screen here over the last couple of weeks. And I just need to say, man, it is fucking electric. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, fucking electric. Those are a little different than the words you were using just the other day when the U S lost to Mexico. And I think you called them frauds pretenders. I, think I said losers. <laughs> I'm just all I have to say is the U.S. should not be losing by near double digits on their home turf. Please look at the U.S.'s roster and tell me they they should be losing to Mexico by 10 runs. You can't do that, right? Yeah, the the first four guys in that lineup are basically surefire, surefire Hall of Famers, Betts, Trout, Goldschmidt, Arenado. And then you've got the rest of the lineup that's just a bunch of studs, too. And I know their pitching isn't great, but. Yeah, they probably should have gone four and zero in this pool play. Although I would bet they still end up going three and one. They're talented enough where they will they'll escape this pool. the The fact remains, I think, when you're watching the U.S. compared to all the other countries, the U.S. is treating it. I saw it put perfectly on Twitter as like a country club atmosphere, and the rest are playing like like the it's the World Baseball Classic and like it means a ton to bring home this championship to your country. Look, look how electric those games are in Miami. I mean, holy crap. Venezuela, the Dominican and Puerto Rico are just the the amount of emotion they're showing in a mid-March baseball game is unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> and when you watch the US, it's well, they're a set they were essentially playing on the road in their home ballpark. Against Mexico. Yeah, those fans for Team Mexico filled up that stadium. And okay, to be fair, it's not like the U.S. is playing a team with no big leaguers. I know they're better than Mexico, but Mexico still has real players on that team. Alex Verdugo, Rowdy Telez, Alec Thomas. Like, there's real major leaguers on that team. But the U.S. still should have won. But you're right. The U.S. and its fans have not lived up to the hype of the other fan bases that have just filled up stadiums for this classic because I mean, compared to even compared to soccer, like there were U S fans at the world cup this past world cup and they were into it. 
But here for the World Baseball Classic, yeah, you're right. It does just kind of feel like a secondary event to them. And I don't want to say it's for the players too. Mike Trout loved to say, I, I, I missed it last time and I've regretted it ever since. And I'm here, I'm, I'm out there playing, right? And it's, it, it, you just yet to see the sort of same emotional level as the other teams that I think is going to be the difference. I mean, let's go across the pond, go to Japan, look at, look at all the fans, all the, and all the players for team Japan when they're playing Shohei Otani, you Darvish and a couple of those other guys. I mean, man, it is just, it is awesome there um, to, to, to watch that team play. And it's, it is just on such a different level than the U S and I have another gripe about the U S besides the, the caring aspect and the fans. I mean, no offense to Mark DeRosa, but I just don't really want to hear about him complaining about his pitchers when everyone else plays under the exact same rules for pitchers. He came he came out today and was said, oh, I can't use these guys on back-to-back days. They can only throw so many pitches. I have to take them out after one inning. I'm like, everyone else is doing that too. <laughs> like, yeah, he probably is upset that guys like Jacob DeGrom didn't want to pitch. Max Freed didn't want to pitch. The top American arms are more worried about the regular season. And that's perfectly reasonable. So maybe he's kind of projecting because the reality is he realizes some of these other rosters have way better rotations than he does. And that's what's hampering Team USA right now. But still, you're right. Everybody's playing under the same rules. I, I can't tell Mark DeRosa... You know, I, I can't fix the the fact that you have an inferior rotation and that there were American pitchers that just didn't want to participate in this tournament. But yeah, like the rules are the rules. Just play by them. Is it like significantly inferior? I mean, yeah, like, I, I mean, mean, is it? I mean, maybe got, to Japan's, but to okay, everyone else? To, to team, I don't know, Colombia, of course they have the better rotation. But, you know, the U.S., has the best crop of talent of baseball players in the world, even though some other countries, the DR, Japan, Venezuela, also produce really good players. And your your number one starter is Adam Wainwright, who's like 40 years old. He had a great career, but like that shouldn't be your number one starter. Okay. I, I will say having pure talent on the mound has been everything. I mean, Sandy got lit up his first time when they play in Venezuela. So That's it's true. not like, it's not apples to apples. That's true. But you're right that the actual aspect of the energy probably does play some factor. I mean, have you seen this Team Venezuela or the, the the guys for Team Venezuela? I mean, they are jumping out of their seats over the dugout railing onto the field for every run that's scored, even when they were up a bunch of runs. Like, it means a lot to them. The U.S., yeah, we just haven't seen it. We'll see it as this World Baseball Classic goes on. I do think it's like very on-brand America for how this this tournament is is treated because the rest of the country seem to be playing for the pride of their homeland, and then America is playing is playing uh, the the Amer- the American effort towards the World Baseball Classic is for pure financial gain, which I think is just funny and so so on-brand America in literally every facet of American life. Regardless, it's been it's been a really bl- uh, a really fun time getting to to watch the World Baseball Classic. I didn't realize how much I missed it. I don't remember it really being this electric when it was on back in 2017. Maybe Fox has just juiced up all the all the crowd mics to make it sound a lot better. But I've been a huge fan of of what the World Baseball Classic has brought here in March as we get ready for the regular season. Another thing that's going to help us get ready for the regular season is here in this episode, we're going to take a look at the Mariners' bullpen 
and preview that group for the 2023 season. Can they have a different look and be elite for a third consecutive season? We have some some numbers that we'll want to touch on here after our interview with Chris Langan. Chris is the director of pitching at Driveline. He helped out a couple of Mariners in the big league bullpen, Matt Brash and Matt Festa, along with uh, one minor leaguer in the Mariners organization, Riley O'Brien, that he said he wants to touch on. And we'll touch on with him briefly here in our interview with him. But a couple got a few guys that spent their off seasons with Driveline uh, and will be a big part of the Mariners bullpen at some time this year. Chris is a very, very smart dude. We think we know baseball numbers well. Well, I went online and I read an article he wrote on driveline.com uh, about pitch shaping and my brain legitimately hurt. It was, it, uh, it was hurting yesterday when I was looking, when I was looking it up and I texted Lyle and Lyle was like, yeah, same thing. Uh, we have not talked to Chris yet as of recording this intro, but I'm sure he's going to do a great job of explaining it when we get to our interview with Chris Langan. So let's do that. Let's go listen. Uh, let's go hear our interview with Chris Langan. We welcome on Chris Langan, the director of pitching at Driveline to the Marine Layer podcast. Chris has been the director of Driveline now, uh, dr- director of pitching at Driveline. Chris, now for how many years? <laughs> months, actually. I've been there. For, I've been the director of pitching here for about four or five months. Our previous director, Bill Hezel, he's actually got the assistant pitching coach job with the Angels. Um, but I've been at Driveline for about three and a half years. So you got some really big shoes to fill. Yeah, you could say so. I mean, that's kind of uh, the underlying thing is, you know, we've had quite a few people who've been directors here who have gone on to some pretty cool things. So uh, I definitely consider myself pretty fortunate to kind of be where I'm at right now. It sounds like from from now we're we're starting this, you know, this recording here on this on this Monday night that you are. uh, I, I thought personally that this is like the busiest time of year for you just thinking about it. Because every you're located in Arizona, driveline right has has places in Arizona and in Kent as well. So I thought, well, with everyone you know in Arizona at once, that increases your demand tenfold. But it sounds like it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's definitely a component of like guys adjusting back to their teams and like making sure all the pitch shapes are good and generally communicating with them. The biggest difference is like. Uh, you've got a little bit of freedom to kind of respond when you want, not saying we like ghost guys or anything, but when you're in the off season, guys are training at the facility um, remotely, et cetera. You have to be there, you know, right when their time is for their bullpen. Um, so that like three to four month stretch is, is generally our, our busiest time of the year with the, the pro ball guys. And then when we get into the summer for our full staff. Um, we get quite a few college guys. So those are kind of the two uh, big time uh, times of the year, so to speak. And I, I told you guys a little bit earlier today was a little bit of an outlier. It was, it was pretty busy today, but yeah, no, that's generally how it goes. I know from my time around some of the the Oregon State kids here in Corvallis, I'm, that's where I'm located here uh, around uh, around Oregon State. That's my day job, essentially covering them. I know they're big fans of you as well. So I'll, I'll lead you to this with uh, off of that basis for for our listeners who might not know who Driveline is. Could you? Could you give the Sparknose version of, of what Driveline is and what Driveline stri- uh, strives to achieve? Sure. So, I mean, mainly it's just, uh, really, it's just baseball development in general. Uh, it's, you know, initially pitching, and then over the past about five, six years, we've added hitting. So, really, kind of, to be frank, just the leaders in data driven training um, in the private sector for those things. So, generally, our biggest uh, concern, goal, uh, especially on the skill side of things, is just like, 
adding value to guys' careers, whether it's in high school, uh, we've got a youth academy, college, and then obviously uh, minor leagues, MLB. So that's our, basically all of our time, all of our thought processes going to uh, developing better players in general with kind of data um, at the forefront of that process. So for you, when you start to search for a job in, in the field, when you're kind of getting out of college and figuring out what you might want to do, I mean, how do you even find this place? Like, like, how did you end up at driveline? And then off that, how did you work your way up to the position you're now in, which is the director of pitching? Yeah. I mean, uh, you find it generally by throwing slow when you played because you're constantly, uh, a little bit depressed when your fastball velocity is about 84. Uh, so you find yourself Googling at night. How do I throw harder? How do I throw harder? Uh, Google that enough times when I was in college, I then eventually came across driveline. It's probably like freshman year was like 2016. So it was kind of before I would say it was like really getting to the forefront of things. Like they didn't have really MLB guys at the time. So I kind of lucked into the timing there where I was learning some of the things they were doing uh, without even being employed here. So I got somewhat of a jump before it became uh, super well regarded or known, so to speak. Um, and then Basically, yeah, I was a bad player, but I really, really, really uh, loved baseball and uh, the way kind of to stay in the sport was naturally coaching. Um, I coached junior college for a bit, uh, about actually just like three months. And then uh, really to a degree, you get somewhat lucky. Uh, a spot opens up. Um, Driveline had a bunch of pitching coaches go to pro ball one year. They had did a coach's certification. I went up to Seattle to do that. While I was there, I annoyed a bunch of people, asked how I could get a job there. Um, and really the, the rest is history. And then, I mean, really it's just, you know, kind of seeing that opportunity and knowing, Hey, in most lifetimes, if I don't get that shot with my background of, uh, throwing 85, uh, you're not necessarily going to be people's first choice to, uh, you know, make much money coaching baseball per se. Um, it's, you know, pretty difficult to provide for a family in general coaching. So, um, kind of saw that, saw it as really good fortune, really good luck and ran with it. And, uh, that's kind of the, the main gist of it, I think. Did driveline only get you up to 85? <laughs> I got up to, it's, it's fine. I got up to 89. So I always wanted to throw 90 really bad. Last time I threw though, it was 89. Um, I tore my ACL. I had some, I had some other injuries and such. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, the most, uh, prowess of genetics per se. Um, but I, but I was at the point I was, I was really willing to do anything to, uh, kind of send it for some velocity. Uh, just, you know, I had like a 10 ERA my freshman year. Uh, sophomore year, things started going a, a bit better, um, throwing a bit harder, had a shot maybe to play a Division One low, low mid-major if I didn't get injured. Uh, but for the most part, I was, you know, if I was going to care that much about baseball, put that much time into it, uh, I figured let, let, let's send it and see what happens. So how have you learned as much as you have? Because in doing some prep for this interview. I mean, TJ and I are pretty big baseball fans. I mean, we, we consider ourselves baseball nerds and we're into all the baseball analytics, especially on the offensive side of things, but we're reading some of your articles in terms of what you know about pitching and how you guys evaluate pitching. And like my head's spinning out of control. So I'm just wondering like, like how in the world did you learn as much as you have getting up to this point? Sure. I mean, part of it's probably a little bit of a lack of other opportunities to do fun things. You know, I, mean, I don't find too many things that enjoyable besides baseball. Uh, when I grew up, I wasn't like the, the not like unattractive, I wouldn't say, but I, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't like on a Friday night, I'd have all these girls, you know, uh, at my disposal per se. So naturally the things that I thought were entertaining were studying baseball, learning it. And then, 
you know, I really grew up with just a dad. So sports were probably even to a certain, I never had the, I never really had a woman in my life to be like, Hey, this, you know, these sports things probably aren't the big picture here. So kind of leaned into that even more. And then once I got to driveline, honestly, uh, you just have so many resources, you meet so many people. Um, and you're just, uh, your, your entire job and life revolves around it. So, um, naturally, you know, you kind of start to filter into learning a bunch of stuff about that. Um, and then if you t ask me about just about any other topic, uh, I'm super unqualified to talk about it. So that's kind of the, kind of the trade out there. I think for what that's the, the statement you just put out, I think that qualifies for all three of us. I'll just, I'm going to generalize and, and say that. Yeah. I think I, I, uh, I, last about 12 <laughs> months, we've been on a little bit of a redemption, you know, trying to change the course per se, but, um, uh, no, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, let's just get into like, I just want to now sort of get into, to driveline's philosophy of pitching, I guess, from if you could generalize it for us, like what, what do like, beside, like driveline's trying to get people better, but with the, the pitching philosophy at driveline, like, like where, where do you guys start? Like where, where does it all start when you're, when you're looking at a pitcher to say, Hey, like we need to get this guy better. Here's, here's what we're going to start and do. Sure. So I, I mean, I think it's really reverse engineering. Like how do you get out like in general and what is like a true predictive process for getting out. So like, the basic things, you know, if you're a fan and starting to get analytics or whatever, is like uh, you're not going to, you know, if somebody has a low or high Babbitt, just to like batting average on balls in play, you kind of learn to be a little bit susceptible to putting too much uh, care into that per se. So generally what you kind of find is like most of the game is striking out guys and, and avoiding walks. So you're really looking at uh, how do we get more of those good outcomes, right? And, and you really, instead of bringing in human bias and uh, declaring a ton of like, oh, I know exactly what this guy needs to do. He needs to throw this. He needs to do this. You, you kind of use some models. We use like a stuff model, a command model, et cetera, um, and kind of figure out how can we make this athlete better. And, and again, the biggest thing is just like using data um, to confirm that. So like if you gain a tick of fastball velocity, we have an idea of, of like how valuable that is for next year's ERA on average. And, you know, pitching's very, especially if you're a reliever, it's very hard to predict. So we try to use sort of those more predictive stats that are less noisy, make that the main thing. And then from there, right, right. Pitching's like stuff, command, let's just say those are the two main things. Um, guys, a lot of stuff is just throwing hard. So we're trying to improve their mechanics. We're looking at with our biomech lab, uh, what are some of the correlations that guys uh, tip like if you influence this one motion in the throw, how much does that generally affect velocity? You figure out, get a reading on what each pitcher is in those categories and kind of like come to a conclusion, like here's how we should best spend our time to get some more of those better outcomes. And really the main driver in all this is that you're using um, data and that's kind of your main process. It doesn't mean you don't introduce some of these qualitative things, especially at the big league level. Um, you get a bigger sample and guys are you know constantly facing one another. But that's the main thing I think is uh, how, how do we get better outcomes and then driving our intention of getting those outcomes through just what the data says. How do you guys start to develop some of the philosophies that you guys really preach over time? And the one I've always kind of had the question on is I know driveline's always been big on the idea of if you have a certain pitch, that's your best pitch just throw it. Like, even if it's not your fastball, just throw it often. And now you see that implemented in the big leagues way more. But I know you guys have always been a big proponent of that. How much data did you guys have to collect over time to realize this really works? So, I mean, 
it, it's kind of something everybody figures out eventually. I mean, it's, if you look at like, I think basketball is always a good example. Like if you look at how many guys are shooting three pointers now, like in the NBA relative to how it's so like, uh, really what happens is that more people, in my opinion, get introduced to the game with a different background. So instead of, you know, having a higher proportion of the guys in the game, maybe being um, more like influential to just like credibility of having played, you get a few more of these guys in the front office who, who think a little bit different differently money ball is probably like the first example of that and that's kind of their new process and then the teams that were ahead of that early basically you could just say throw your slider more and like you were beat you had like a pretty good margin on the rest of the league at that time well that's kind of essentially gotten introduced to every team at this point some follow it obviously much more than others um but really i think it's just like hey sports you can kind of use especially in baseball where there isn't quite as much context like the the pitcher and the hitter really you don't, it doesn't matter who's in right field that much. It doesn't matter um, who's on deck really that much, you know, whereas in football, you're trying to control for how good the offensive line is for the running back, things like that. So I think a lot of it is just more people in the game who uh, are looking at these things to try to get better outcomes. And as a result, that's what is kind of the deficiency at the time. And that's how they kind of come to the conclusion um, of throwing your best pitch more often, throwing more sliders, um, not just throwing a fastball because it's, you know, a two-one count, and you feel like throwing an off-speed pitch isn't challenging the guy. Which pitcher is the best example of, of this for for the general fan to look at and say, "Oh, well, duh." <laughs> I, I mean, Matt Whistler. I mean, that's the, you did say general fans. So that probably wasn't the best example to use. But <laughs> Matt Whistler's like ninety percent sliders. Uh, McCuller. I, I, I think the McCullers example out of back in when the Astros, um, you know, the mid 2010s, 2016, 2017, those years. He, uh, he, he had a game where he threw his curveball like 25 straight times in the playoffs. Um, so that's like another good example, I think, of just guys leaning into those pitches. Uh, really, honestly, the, the best one for what you had, general audience, if you look at Shohei Otani, look at his, uh, his four-seam fastball usage at the beginning of 2021 compared to like the last two games of 2022. He, uh, in his first inning in 2021, it's really sad I have this memorized, he threw 12 four-seam fastballs in the first inning. And he was in this game, he was throwing like 100, like averaging 98 or something. In his last two games of the year combined, he threw like eight total four-seam fastballs in those games. So that's probably the best example of, he just started ripping a bunch and a bunch of sweeping sliders. Um, the general thought is like, and, and it is true to some degree, I'm not like discrediting this entirely, but if you're struggling with walks, throw your contact inducing pitches more. Um, and I think it's generally like kind of correct, but for Shohei really, um, just rip more sliders. And to be frank, if you look at where the catcher's glove is, um, he's throwing them, basically his heat map, uh, is just all blue in the entire zone. Whereas with his four seamer, it's not like that. So he has to be uh, a little bit more careful with where he throows it. And sometimes that can actually lead the guys to be a nitpicky and missing the zone more often. What? Okay. Just, I'm going to base it off of what, how you just answered that last question, how you began it. What, what is the stat that you're most embarrassed that you have memorized? If your memory is that good. <laughs> oh gosh, man. I, I don't know. There's, there's probably just like too many. It's one of those things. Like if you, uh, if you bring something up, it'll like come to me. But if I have to like literally think of it and pull it out of the box, it, it probably doesn't go as good. Um, gosh, I don't know. Maybe I set myself up there, but uh, the fact that I know that one specifically probably, probably isn't the best. I mean, I know like Sonny Gray has like 60, I think it's like 64, like hip shot sinkers to lefties with two strikes over the last two years. That's probably something I shouldn't have memorized next time. It's like 47. So 
Uh, there's there's some very niche things going through my head at times, and uh, I've always been one for numbers. Uh, so I don't know. I've been I might just see the world that way naturally. So let's so. think about this regarding to numbers. And this is gonna this will uh, this is gonna help us for what this episode of the podcast is gonna be. And we're gonna be previewing the Mariners bullpen and and relievers specifically. And I don't think any stat really helps out a pitcher more than has come on recently than stuff plus. I know you guys at Driveline will will use it. General, I don't know if there's different versions exactly because I'm still trying to learn it and understand the stat a little bit. But if you could explain it, how do you guys measure like how is stuff measured and then how do you how do you quantify it in this number? Sure. So the idea the the plus scale would basically be that uh, 100 is like a league average pitch. Maybe this is the best way to start with this, but like a 100 is a league average pitch. So if you ever look at like a stuff plus scale, the idea would be that uh, if you're an 80, you're 20% below the league average. If you're 120, that pitch is going to rate 20% above the league average. Um, I mean, stuff plus really now people are going to have different methods of like how they go about getting the calculation. But what you're basically trying to control for, and people can have alternative versions of this, but like, is how good is this pitch if like command is agnostic and like not involved at all? And really the biggest thing, really what it's trying to say is nasty. How nasty is this pitch? Um, and some, some, most, most teams will like filter by pitch type. So, uh, fastballs obviously do not lower the run environment typically as well as like a slider. So a fastball, that's like a 110 isn't necessarily, um, going to predict success as if a pitcher threw a 100 stuff plus slider, um, at the same rate, if that makes sense. But, uh, basically you're looking at how nasty is the pitch. Uh, and then the way you get that calculation is really derived from like looking at similar pitches. Um, and just like crossing out the command aspects of it. And really the biggest, there's a couple of things. One of the biggest things is it, it stabilizes very quickly. So like in a, in a spring training game, um, the guy throws two outings, you probably have a pretty good, like whatever he throws in that game is probably actually like a pretty good, like big signal there that like, this is probably who this guy is now uh, to some degree. Um, whereas command uh, can take a little bit longer, the, the sample size needed there. So um, it, it's one of those things that, uh, stuff really just stabilizes quicker. And then when you're in the off season, right. And you're trying to determine what is a good pitch for this guy to throw, you can use that stuff plus number to kind of determine what shape you want to go after. And instead of having to wait for feedback from hitters on whether or not you should go through with throwing this pitch, you can really show the athlete like, Hey, uh, we're being probabilistic at the end of the day. But like, if you throw this shape at the exact same command as the current shape you throw, you should have better results over the course of the year with, you know, tinkering with this strip and getting, you know, three inches of sweep at the cost of, you know, half a mile an hour of velocity or something. So that's kind of um, stuff plus in a nutshell, I suppose. That's a pretty good segue here into a couple of these Mariners relievers, because a guy that obviously ranked very, very well in terms of stuff plus is Matt Brash, who's been seen in some Twitter videos working out at driveline this off season and working on some stuff. We heard you in an interview earlier this off season talking about Matt Brash's slider. And I heard you say, in terms of movement and velocity, you said that might be the best pitch in the history of baseball. I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, like Mariano Rivera's cutter, or Dwight Gooden's fastball or slider. But you were very, very definitive about, no, like, it's brash. And, and it sounds like you really believe that. <laughs> yeah, I had a couple people tell me I was Stephen A. Smith when they heard it. Um, I mean, if you're, like, involved, again, if you're, like, daily life, so to speak, is like looking at stuff plus numbers, like it's really not that crazy of a statement. Like you can, like, don't get me wrong. It's not like 
uh, I, I wouldn't say it's like Steph Curry with three point shooting, right? Like he's, if, if somebody says anybody but Steph Curry, you're just like, come on, man. Like you, that's not, that's not a thing. You know what I mean? So like, I'm not saying he's like, you know, sway, like he's right here and the next size guy is here. But I, I can tell you right now that slider, uh, to, to kind of summarize it quickly, uh, it's basically thrown when he was on the bullpen, it basically was thrown at a league average cutter velocity. Like that's how hard he threw it. Um, Forever's league average cutter moves two and a half inches. Uh, his slider moved 15 inches. So he uh, he is doing things with that baseball that are just absolutely unheard of. Um, and in terms of like how nasty that pitch is, like that's, if you see that thing, you're just like, how in the world is this possible? You know what I mean? And, and I literally like, it, yeah, I 100% believe it. Uh, if you look at like the stuff plus of that pitch, it is very difficult to say with certainty, like, oh, that pitch is better than that. Now, in terms of results, like, uh, you know, Dylan C's has better slider results than Matt Brash. Like that's, that's just a fact currently, but uh, there's other components of getting results that aren't just associated with the stuff. So if we filter for stuff um, like, and you gave everybody in theory, league average command, like I would, I would, my, I'd take Matt Brash's slider over anybody's, you know what I mean? Um, so that's kind of the, kind of the idea there. And uh, like the mechanics of it, I remember you, uh, I was listening to some interview did, and it was something it's, is it his middle finger that makes it special? He's got like a long middle finger. That's like, he can just rip it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I probably didn't do him any favors by bringing that one up. I think he gets caught. He gets uh, asked about it like all of the time now. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if you look at how he like, but I got, I have like a tweet of it up, but if you look at like how he hooks the baseball, uh, it just doesn't look natural. It doesn't like, if you tried to put your fingers on the ball like that, you would not be able to do it. You know what I mean? So I think basically he, he can hook the ball and he can basically create uh, tension into that baseball and apply force for an incredibly long time. Um, and still basically throw the, throw the thing at a cutter velocity, but still uh, get in front of the ball, uh, get the sweep on it and, and have the movement as well. Uh, but generally, yeah, I, I, the, the middle finger thing is, is pretty wild. Uh, and then also he's just like really good at supinating or uh, getting around a baseball. Some guys are really good at like turning over a ball. Some guys are better at getting here. This is where you typically see the guys get breaking balls. Uh, they supinate pretty well. Um, he biases a bit towards that. And then when you also add in the, the middle finger, uh, you know, you get arguably the, the best pitch in terms of stuff uh, that we've ever seen. You can correct me if I quote this wrong, but with that slider, it seemed like the approach opposing teams and opposing hitters started to take toward it. And I thought I saw you talk about something along these lines is, I mean, this is almost impossible to hit. Our best chance against this thing is to basically, if we see spin, just don't swing. Right. Yeah. So like, that's a, that probably is, is even a bigger thing in the context of brash, right? Cause like the idea, and I'll just, we'll just say like as a starter in 2022 for reference, uh, the idea is like, He's got, you know, 96, uh, a four-seamer, and then he's got these two kind of disgusting breaking balls. Well, if he spins himself out of a pitcher's count early and you can sit on that one pitch shape, it's 96, but really the, the movement of it wasn't absurd. Um, and, and what you tend to see is one with sweepers and bigger depth breaking balls. Uh, hitters just generally don't swing as often because they don't really, those pitches don't start in the zone per se. Um, so Everybody always talks about how those pitches sometimes aren't chased as much either, but, but really the thing is they just aren't swung at as often as some of the like shorter breaking balls. Um, Cause they kind of deviate from the fastball a bit. And then there's also to be frank, the component of, of like you said, if, 
if the pitch is nasty enough, like hitters are going to swing at things they think they can hit, you know? So there's probably, uh, there's a lot of times he kind of, he, you know, he kind of puts one right in the chase spot as a starter, but it's so difficult to hit. You actually don't get the, the chase and it's a ball, you know? So the, the main idea is those pitch shapes are also generally more difficult to command. It's just a lot of movement to project into zone. They also aren't swung at as much. Um, and then as a starter, you know, if you're 98 out of the pen, you're generally going to be 96 as a starter. You got to go through the, the order a few more times. So that stuff then also plays plays down a hair compared to in the bullpen. And then the role is just a little bit different. Like when you come in as a reliever, walks don't uh, necessarily hurt you as much. The game is better. Uh, the, the game has like a smaller amount of uh, time to be played. So you see more pitchers going after preventing any amount of runs at all. Whereas when you're throwing, you know, five, six innings, uh, you're, you're kind of trying to contain walks and do some of those things. So, yeah, no, the, the idea is with those bigger breaking balls, they're generally not going to induce swings as much. Uh, and if you have somebody who's walking guys, throwing those pitches, uh, and that's like the primary pitches they throw. And if you look at his usage, he was like third highest in the league with breaking balls. And then the funny, the, the funny one to me is like the average pitcher in that group that was like top 10, uh, their pitches moved on average, like I want to say like nine inches, right? And he was third in this ranking. He has moved 19. So like, the guys who were the guys who were honestly in that ranking board able to throw it that often, they were throwing shorter types of sliders that were a little bit easier to command and, and put in the zone, you know, one oh uh, and get a swing, et cetera. And are these guys with like subpar off speed stuff who are who are essentially just lobbing it over for a strike opposed to Brash who's really chasing that strikeout? So, uh, so I'd say in that grouping of those 10, what, what they the typically is, it's a lot of guys who are throwing like firmer sliders, like that they're throwing the, like the more gyro okay. slider. They might, there might be like a little bit of sweep on there, but the idea is that the, in, in a sense, I'm oversimplifying this, but the closer you are to like your fastballs movement, uh, generally the more swings you're going to get in general. Uh, and then we've like, and we literally have this known, uh, on average, like when a pitcher puts less movement on the ball they tend to like actually hit their intended target or command the ball better as well. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea there would be if you're throwing 35, 40% sliders, but it is a little bit of a smaller shape. It is a more realistic pitch to throw that often given the count state of the game. You're not always throwing an 0-1 count. You're not always throwing an 0-2 count. Um, you're throwing in, you know, 1-0 type of counts. And if you don't want to throw a fastball, you better be able to get that pitch over over the course of a season. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking just off the top of my head, if we're thinking in terms of effectiveness, that's sort of like the difference between a Matt Brash throwing fastball slider and an Edwin Diaz throwing fastball slider. Is that an unfair comparison? So, uh, yeah, I mean, Edwin Diaz's fastball, I think it's just like the, it's just a lot different than, than Matt's. Like, uh, what, mm -hmm. I, it's a little bit harder uh, his command's a little bit better, and then it, it, he actually has like a bit lower of a release height. And then when you throw legit 100 miles an hour, like on average, um, to your point too, that that type of slider that he throws, which really isn't going to be eye popping, it's more of like a gyro. It almost is like right in between a like gyro slider and more of a cutter. Um, it, it's going to be easier to throw in a 1001 type of count and progress the count accordingly versus kind of like. If you throw a bigger pitch shape there, well, hell, you already throw 100 miles an hour. Like, you don't necessarily have to fool the hitter a ton. Um, you can almost just – I don't almost consider the equivalent of, like, hitting a 500-foot home run. Just like, all right, you could hit it, like, 420. 
instead and, and still gotten like one run on the board. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd say kind of what you're saying there is probably correct. So how does Matt Brash start to find a way to command the slider a little bit better? Because I know one of the areas that he has to improve on as his career goes on is commanding his pitches a little bit better. And I would assume one of those being that slider. So if you look at uh, as a reliever, one, he just like, there's a couple things, right? Like if you're, you're throwing harder as a reliever, you're in, uh, you don't have to worry about going through the order multiple times. Um, and then the other thing is just like the game environment is a lot different. The game is generally... Uh, you know, you're trying to just get a strikeout. You're trying to do some of these things. Hitters tend to swing more if runners on scoring position. So there's some of these things going on. I, I, the biggest thing, it didn't really get talked about that much. Uh, but obviously, when you come out of the pen, you're going to throw your slider harder. But he actually did uh, tighten up the shape a little bit. He went basically when he was starting, I want to say he was like 85 with the slider. And it had depth. So it was like negative four vertical and about like 16, 17 horizontal. When he came out of the pen, he put like four ticks on the thing. And it was actually a, a little bit more tighter. So we went from like negative four and like the 16 inch sweep to basically it was like positive one in, in 13. So if the plate's 17 inches, right, uh, you're going to get basically, if, if you just throw right down the middle in theory, that pitch should look, uh, you know, a bit easier to maintain and stay on the plate. And then to a certain degree, I did think uh, he got a few more, he used to like spike some of those sliders at times, but with the movement profile being a bit less depthy. Uh, he basically would just like occasionally miss up in the zone and basically anything in the strike zone for him with that pitch is going to be a positive outcome. So you'd rather basically see a higher proportion of your misses uh, end up in the zone. And I think uh, with how firm that slider was, it got there just a little bit quicker, didn't move quite as much. Um, and then obviously there's some component of relieving um, that, that just helps the pitch in general. But uh, that was, I think probably one of one of the starts of it. And again, he's at the point of diminishing returns with the slider that, uh, you know, whether it's 90 with 10 inches of sweep, 86 with 15, like you're, you're pretty much just pressing the top of the league, regardless of what you're throwing there. And that was the slider. I think we saw yesterday. I don't know if you saw any of his highlights when he's closing out for team can. I mean, he's sitting 91. He's got like 3000 RPMs on that thing. It, I thought it was his cutter, which I'm about to ask you about, but I see him throw that yesterday for team Canada. I, I legitimately thought it was his cutter and I had to go on Savant and look. I'm like, well, no, cutters don't spin 3000 RPMs usually. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy pitch. Right. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of what I'm being that, that pitch uh, that's firmer at, at 90, right. That slider, especially out of the bullpen. Um, that's going to be just a little bit easier. I think to kind of keep on the plate, throw it middle and um, progress counts, et cetera. Um, so no, I, I'm a huge fan and, and believer of him continuing to do that. But yeah, here the the, the uh, angle also wasn't the best. I don't think like, but uh, when you see a pitch that fast, uh, you just like assume it's a cutter. You know what I mean? Like the broadcast guy for, for sure thought it was a cutter. I think it was still moving almost like a foot on average. So I mean, you just don't you just don't see that pitch. You just do not see 90 mile an hour pitches that move a foot. Man, it, it, it's absolutely wild. Where does the cutter uh, come into play with all this? So it really comes into play with like inducing action, inducing swings. And then again, kind of being that middle ground to, to a certain degree too, to protect his, his fastball. Like if anything, the, the fastball is probably the one pitch that it's like, Hey, he can't necessarily just throw this right down the middle to every hitter in the league. Um, so I think that's really the main thing of the cutter is, especially as a starting pitcher, um, you're trying to progress counts. You're trying to get guys to swing at more of your, bigger breaking balls, et cetera. And then also to be frank, like uh, 
I mean, we ran it like the, the cutter grades out uh, better than his four seamer. Uh, and like, once he has the comfort for it, I, I'd expect him maybe introduced a bit more. There's also the reality, like, look, if this dude throws 91 miles an hour, 91 mile an hour sliders out of the bullpen with 10 inches of sweep, and he just like does what he did yesterday against uh, Great Britain, like he doesn't have to throw it. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that's, that there is some truth in that. I do think in terms of uh, as a starter, I think it's pretty tough to ask a guy to throw two huge breaking balls a non-elite fastball when you factor into the velocity loss that generally comes with starting. Um, most starters, I mean, Logan Gilbert's probably one of the better examples of this. Like if you have a, the best way to start without exceptional command is to have a really good four-seam fastball because that pitch will get whips in the zone. It'll get whips out of the zone. You can use OO, you can use a 2-0, you can use 0-2. Like you can just continue to use that pitch. When you're a guy who has to like spin stuff more often there's just like a, a game flow with the counts that if you do not have the capability to put it in, in the zone enough um, and induce some chases etc you kind of then are forced to throw uh, a 96 mile an hour fastball or whatever with not great movement in a 3-1 count or the hitter sits there and says spin the slider let's see if you can land it and if it moves this much it might be a pretty you know it's a pretty logical gamble for him to just like let it go and see if the umpire holds the ball I guess the last question I have on Brash, and you alluded to it for just a minute there, is if he continues to develop this cutter, in your mind, could you see him eventually working his way back into a starter's role? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the that's kind of one of the biggest points of it in general. Um, you just don't like the only you just don't see that type of Arsenal as a starting pitcher, like what he what he went in there with. Uh, he has a, a sweeping cider, and then he had like a he still has like a knuckle curve, but really um, in terms of like use case, like those two pitches kind of were used for the same reason. Like they both got a, they, they, the curveball maybe a bit more, would get like a bit more takes in the zone, but they were both like bigger shaped pitches um, that essentially were more like swing and miss breaking balls uh, and pitches that either get takes in the strike zone because of how they enter them um, or have to be like commanded fairly well off the plate. So um, the idea, I think, was, was basically, and he never failed with it as he was, you know, a minor league relief or minor league starter. I'm not sure that I would have, like, if I was in, you know, the their coach's shoes, et cetera, like, I probably would have just been like, yeah, let's just roll this thing out there. It's the slider's absurd. He, he's, if he can throw it 60% of the time, like Lance McCullers or whatever, as a starter, let, let's let it roll. Um, but I think that the the fastball, just the the profile of it, um, it just needed another contact-inducing pitch in there. And, and I think really that's the biggest thing for him to, to have success as a starter, in, in my estimation, is, is to have that pitch. Well, I was hoping we could transition a little bit here to Matt Festa as well, another guy that's worked out at driveline for a part of this offseason. Uh, he's a guy that – what can he do to kind of um, improve his stuff and effectiveness in the bullpen. Cause you know, he's a guy that generates a lot of swing and miss too, but how does he continue to build on that? Sure. Yeah. And the guy, the, the guy who works with just a shot is Brandon man. He's a, a pitching trainer here as well. So I want to make sure he gets his, his due diligence. Um, but I mean, for one, he, he I believe he had some like velocity loss throughout the season. Uh, I think he averaged like 92 and a half. Um, at your point, he still got a ton of swing and misses. Like he has really, uh, it, you know, if you're not super, enamored with pitch metrics and stuff you may it doesn't jump off at the page but his four seam fastball is kind of wild like it's thrown from an absurdly low slot and has like uh almost close to league average carry on it which is like a very valuable pitch you throw it up in the zone 
So he does, to your point, get a ton of whiffs um, despite throwing like 92, 93 miles an hour. Um, so the first off, can we get him to, you know, 93 plus, 94 plus sitting on average? Velocity, to be frank, is just always one of those things as simple as it sounds. Um, if you can get more of it, it's the simplest way uh, to, to improve as a picture, picture for a lot of guys. Um, the other thing is he, he did add a cutter and uh, I think he's flirted a little bit with a splitter. Not sure if that'll show up, but the idea is if, if you look at his minor league numbers, it's even a bit more pronounced. Uh, he can't throw his sweeper quite as much to the left-handed hitters. That pitch tends to be a bit of a platoon issue. Like it dominates right on right. Um, when you throw it right on left, it kind of has a, a pretty decent penalty. Guys just do not swing it, miss, swing and miss at it as much. Um, so he threw a few more fastballs to lefties um, and really throughout his career, he's had like, somewhat of like a contact quality problem when he faces lefties and probably more so just like doesn't strike out as many. Um, so adding the cutter there as another pitch for left-handers uh, was probably the other big thing. But I mean, for the most part, improve the fastball velocity, get as close to 94 on averaging as possible, and then have the cutter drop basically a, another weapon against lefties. I think against righties, like you just shove that sweeper and uh, you kind of surprise them up in the zone with a, a pretty absurd approach angle fastball. Um, it really is just like throwing a little bit harder to improve his overall talent. And then for that left side of the plate, uh, having another option to go to with that cutter. It's kind of fascinating. I didn't, I didn't realize his fastball, he is one of the better fastballs on the Mariners, despite having a lower velocity uh, on that pitch. And I, I don't know how, if you could sort of scale this for us, but I'm, I'm just peeking at the stuff plus numbers for, for his fastball versus his slider. His fastball is at about a 108. But like you said, since fastballs don't, uh, really or prevent or, or dampen the run environment. They, they're not usually scaled as high opposed to a slider, a sweeper, like you said, that's about 128. So, that, I mean, that's both really like, that's pretty plus on both of those. Right. Yeah. His, uh, his slider is honestly pretty darn absurd too. Like if he, if, when he's, uh, I mean, I watched him in spring a little bit, like he was throwing some like 85 with 15 and, you know, I think he was up to 94, uh, maybe touched a five with, with his four seamer. Um, yeah, the, the fastball is just like, you just do not see um, that. You just do not see somebody able to generate that carry from that low of an arm slot very often. And honestly, if you look at it, it's kind of uh, one of the, if you look at like any minor league stuff with the Mariners, you can just like, there's like two things stand out. Uh, and generally, honestly, you can tell a little bit more about a team's pitch model or approach based off the minor league data. Uh, they, they love guys with low arm slots and they love sweeping sliders. And like, He's probably like the, the best example of what the Mariners um, have kind of tried to find to, to develop throughout the years. Um, and if you look in the bullpen, I mean, you've got Brash, you've got Festo, you've got Seawald. So um, they tend to have a lot of those types of guys. Uh, Penn Murphy too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, same, so, yeah. same slot. And he, his, the, the numbers love him. I did. I mean, we're researching for this episode. I didn't, I did not realize how much stuff plus loves that, loves that low arm swat and the, in a, in a true, uh, true sweeping slider. Yeah. So it, that would be good to see for, uh, for Matt Brash for the season, uh, of how he develops. Uh, is he ever going to be like a, a guy with really true three, uh, three pitches, or is, is he going to be like, Hey, I can get this fastball to good enough where that, that left, uh, the, when there's a lefty up there at the plate, you said the sweeper might be a little bit of an issue where it's like, well, my fastball is like, is it can get to a point where it's that good where I won't need so it. Who, who is this again? That'd be the maps are all confused on Festa. Uh, Oh yeah, sorry. I, you said I think you said Brash TJ. I think you oh sorry Festa. Festa. Sorry, I'm getting my oh, words so, mixed no, up too. Long yeah, day. <laughs> no, I, I think I think Festa for sure. I mean, he's he's implementing the the cutter in the WBC right now, so I, I think he's definitely already like a, a three pitch guy. Like, um, and, and now he's going to be. I would imagine again, I'm not like 
it, it's sometimes it's odd for me to even do these things uh, because it's like best is probably the best guy to ask for this. But I, I'd almost be certain like you're going to see when a righty is up there, the cutter is thrown, you know, at a ridiculously low rate versus when a lefty's up there. That's going to be kind of when it comes into play. You know what I mean? So he's, he's going to be uh, to the left left handers. He's going to have like a true three pitch Smiths out of the bullpen varieties. Like I just, you know, he, he may occasionally throw it in a certain counter to a certain hitter, but the the slider is just so absurd to a right-handed hitter um, that I, I don't imagine it'll come out. The, the cutter will come out too much against those guys. I have one Logan Gilbert question. I know this is a reliever episode, but I but I have to ask it because Logan worked with you guys this offseason. Why should Mariner fans be excited to watch Logan Gilbert slider? Or sorry, slider. Splitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's nasty. I mean, it's it's extremely, extremely nasty pitch. Uh, the other thing, too, uh, from talking to Logan and just like looking at some of the numbers on his, on his changeup is he – basically never had much feel for the change of command wise. It was like an okay pitch stuff wise. It would get some, it would get like swing and miss when guys swung at it, but it really didn't get much chase because it wasn't commanded. The idea, right. is like, you can have a nasty pitch, but like guys aren't going to swing at it if it's not that close to the strike zone. And while he did, like when people swung at it, get some amount of swing and miss, uh, it just missed too often um, for it to be really that valuable of a pitch for him, you know? So that's, at the end of the day, that is the pitch you're competing against. Um, and I'm telling you right now, there's definitely some amount of like, Hey, let's see how, uh, command progresses with it naturally. But I've seen the data on it in, in spring training. The, the pitch is very, very good in terms of like stuff. Plus, uh, it's got very good drop from his four seamer. Uh, really he's just like the perfect candidate for that pitch because of his arm slot. Um, he, he is like straight over the top and generally those are the guys, um, that you kind of can give splitters to and, and get some of the better results with the pitch shape. Um, and then like with the change up, it just looked like in talking to him and such, like there's a point, like when, when he first came up, he was on like 16 miles an hour slower than his fastball. You could like see him slowing down his body. Um, so it was never a pitch you could entirely like turn over like Devin Williams style. And he didn't really have, uh, he didn't, I, I don't want to get too nerdy, but like he didn't really have some of the components that would allow for you to throw like a change up grip and get like late movement on it. Uh, he just had to kind of widen the fingers, um, get some form of a split there from over the top. And probably the biggest thing, if you ask Logan, his favorite thing about it is he can kind of just turn his brain off and let the grip do the work and, and kind of send it just like a fastball. And we know, uh, we know he lets throw fastballs. So um, that's always a good thing. Does it, I'll just follow up with one last question based off what TJ just asked. Does it actually have the same shape as Kodai Sanga's ghost fork? Because that's been some of the comparison that people have thrown out on there on Twitter. Gosh, I don't, I, I honestly don't have memorized what Kodai's like horizontal break is on his four seamer or sorry, on his uh, splitter. I mean, to be frank, most of the, this pitch's value is in just like getting depth on it. So you're just like trying to, you don't really, I mean, yeah, you'd like a little bit of fade. You don't want it to necessarily like cut, but for the most part, you're just trying to get the vertical break as low as possible. And like, he's getting, uh, you know, 90th plus percentile, like drop off of his four seam fastball. So again, when we talk about like stuff plus, we're talking about something that stabilizes quickly. Uh, he's got that, like, he's got that part of the equation down. How close can he get to call it? Let the, I mean, hell, you just call it 40 command, like 40 grade command, just like a bit below league average command. If he can get it there, uh, or if it's just a pitch that like, he throws an advantage counts. Like, I really think that's, that's the answer for uh, a bit more whiffs, a bit more strikeouts. Uh, but I think in terms of the, the stuff plus, like he's kind of got that, got that down, even in this short 
spring tra uh, training um, sample. So uh, a, a big credit to him, to be frank, too, because he, he came in and he did the assessment with us. Um, and we, we kept in touch a bit, but he really committed to developing the command and continuing to master the consistency of the shape um, by himself with his own training. So I, I do want to make sure it's known that like he really deserves a lot of the most of the credit here. Chris, I'm going to give you an opportunity here to, you mentioned it to me that you wanted to give a shout out to Riley O'Brien, a guy who went to high school just up the road from me at uh, at Shorewood High School. I attended Ballard, uh, acquired from the, the uh, acquired by the Mariners from the Reds uh, on April 22nd of last year, just over a year ago. And he spent what, the off season with you guys as well. Yeah, no, uh, Riley, if you look at his like second half of the year, uh, like his velocity and some of his stuff numbers, they really went up. He, he kind of changed some things, um, dropped his slot a bit, actually started throwing a sinker instead of a four seamer. So he was already making some changes that were uh, beneficial during the second half of, of last season. Um, ERA and some of those things don't look great, but uh, if you filter for like how he looked once he made some of these changes, it tells kind of a different story. And then, uh, I mean, I want to say his last game in spring training, he was pumping 96.5 on average. Um, he's another guy with a big sweeping slider, I'd imagine, the Mariners. And he went on waivers for the Reds, and they saw that slider, and they said, we're going to acquire this. Um, and that's a, that's a pitch that moves basically like 20 inches, um, about 82 miles per hour, 80, 82, 84. I've seen him get up to 86. And then um, he's also another guy who's, who's uh, getting a cutter introduced into the arsenal, throwing it during spring training. So – uh, he's a guy I, I really think relievers are always tend to be a, a bit variant. They're difficult to predict, but that's a stuff wise. That's a big league arm and the command is not like brutal. Like it's not, it, this isn't some guy who's going out there uh, and like, hasn't been able to to get outs at all, or like has no feel for where the ball is going. Like he doesn't need, especially if he sits 96 plus, he really doesn't need that much more to be uh, a guy who's like constantly in the big leagues. Um, and he, he really did a, a ton of work um, working with Brandon as well, Brandon Mann um, up in Seattle and in, in that location. Um, he's a guy I think, I really do think you'll see him at some point up with, with the Mariners. This has all been really interesting. So, I mean, really all the time you've given us in these 45 minutes, breaking down all these pitchers. I mean, I've learned a ton. I'm, I'm sure TJ has too, but to pick the brain of somebody who knows probably more pitching than just about anybody you can find out there. I mean, I found this super interesting. So, I mean, we appreciate it a ton. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. There's like, there, there's like probably like 1500 humans in the world. I can probably like really be like, Oh, that guy's like kind of cool. And then if you filter me for any other conversation that doesn't have to do with this, uh, sports, baseball, et cetera, probably don't have much, much to me. You know what I mean? It's not the best, not the best conversation ever um, for small talk or whatever, but no, I appreciate it. And obviously it's a, it's a passion and I'm beyond fortunate to be able to say I do this for a job. So I appreciate you guys. Oh, who's someone who you've like met your match with knowledge wise? Uh, Dan O'Coin. Yeah, I, I don't know. If you, Dan O'Coin probably is one of the most influential people in, in drivelines history. Like it, the, he's kind of like, we basically had uh, Eric Jaggers, Rob Hill, I'll, I'll get some context who these people are, Bill Heasel, uh, Sam Breen. Those, those four guys are all directors of pitching. Rob's with the Dodgers, Sam Breen's with the Yankees. Uh, Bill's actually assistant pitching coach with the Angels. And then Eric Jaggers, he's with the, the Mets as their director of pitching. And Dan O'Coin is like an R&D guy. He's with the Phillies now. Uh, 
that guy has meant a lot to, to, to drive on in a lot of these people's in, intelligence. And then they tell you that as well. I'll say it very clearly here, that guy, uh, to a certain degree, uh, if, if you guys do consider me smart or whatever, like that's, that's always the guy I'm going to point to and say, Hey, that was one of the more lucky run-ins I ever had in life. Um, and you know, when you, when you talk to people, they never necessarily know that you're a, you know, a byproduct of somebody else's time they put into you. Um, and for most of my relationship with Dan, I didn't have necessarily any unique knowledge to give to him. So, uh, obviously been built up a bit at this point, but, uh, he's a guy who, you know, without him and his influence and obviously driveline being able to, to come here and then get that relationship, uh, that that's probably who I owe most of, uh, any success or any positive comment I have about me too. Well, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your evening to to chat with us today. I we've we've learned a ton. Uh, if listeners, if you want to go throw harder, go find Chris. He's got you. You'll be throwing ninety uh, in no time. Chris Langan, we really appreciate you joining uh, joining the show today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you guys again for having me. Really appreciate it. Another fantastic interview that time with Chris Langan of Driveline Baseball. Always good stuff there. But let's continue with the rest of this episode and the remainder of our bullpen preview here as we count down the weeks, getting closer and closer to opening day for the 2023 season. And for this episode, of course, it is the bullpen preview, and we're going to get to the rest of the guys we have not touched on yet. Well, let's lead it off with the guy who I think slam dunk, we think best reliever in this bullpen entering the 2023 season and not even really arguably, uh, I think we set the expectation for Munoz, uh, Andres Munoz, for this 2023 season as a top five reliever in baseball yet again, like he was last year. That's what I have here in my notes. I said, best reliever hands down on the Mariners roster, top five reliever in all of baseball. And if you want to dig even deeper into it, I put his baseball savant page literally looks like a tall glass of Kool-Aid. I mean, this guy's page is bright red. And what I mean by that is every single category that Savant measures with those bubbles, he basically excels in all of them. It's amazing how this guy was essentially a throw-in. It really it really, it really, makes you chuckle of how projectable some of these guys are. And when those projectabilities really hit, man, it's awesome. That dude, he is... Uh, he is everything the Mariners could have imagined as a replacement to Edwin Diaz. He's literally Edwin Diaz light, I put it. Uh, a bit a bit of a younger, chunkier version of Edwin Diaz, but the same profile as a reliever. And it's it's just been it's been awesome that they've been able to just find this guy in their system and turn him into something so great. His basic numbers say enough. I mean, he put up a 249 ERA last year, but his advanced numbers probably say even more. I mean, expected ERA of 184, ERA plus of 149. So he was 49% above league average as a reliever last year. So he throws 103 miles an hour. He has a slider that's absolutely ridiculous. And he profiles at the top of the league in all these categories between fastball, velo, and swing and miss, whiff rate, everything. I mean, it, it truly is unbelievable how good this guy's been for a guy that was the third or fourth piece in that Austin Nola trade. What's amazing is that his fastball, despite being thrown at 103 miles an hour, grades out on a pretty average scale when you look at stuff plus, which we talk about with Chris Langan, 
but we're also going to talk about here. You know, Saris has this version too. There's a version on Fangraphs. Not quite sure whose version it is. I think it's Eno Saris's stuff plus. Not totally sure. I know the different ways. There's some different ways of measure, measuring it. But in summary, stuff plus is just right. Um, it it just measures how good your good your pitches are on a on a pure raw basis. So the Andres Munoz fastball, despite being 103, is just just about an average pitch. But man. That slider, in terms of results, Lyle, is, I mean, it's behind Edwin Diaz and Dylan Cease. I mean, that's what we're talking about of how good that pitch is. It is it is an unbelievable pitch. And he's looking at another pitch this year that he toiled with a little bit in the minors. I think he toiled around a bit with a two-seamer in the minors. And we've seen some video of him tossing it around on the backfields. Could you even imagine him with a third pitch that's even half as effective as that slider? He does, I mean, he doesn't need it, but I would be I'd be down. I, yeah, it, it would be even funnier if he had another pitch pitch that caused uh, whiffs. When he's really in a when he's really in a rut, he'll completely throw his fastball out, and he will look, just go slider, 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 slider until the guy's just standing there spinning like a top because he can't he can't make contact with it. So if you were to come up with another pitch like that, a two seamer, just like meh. Just trying to like maybe shatter some bats, get some weak contact, which is fine for a reliever. And you throw as hard as he does, eventually a guy's going to run into your four-seam fastball and barrel it up pretty well. It's a little bit harder to do that with a two-seamer. That's what he's been doing to Dylan Moore on the backfields. I mean, he's been testing out this two-seamer, and we've seen multiple videos of Dylan Moore breaking bats as he starts to get some at-bats to work back in from his injury. And Munoz just keeps tying him up with these two-seamers, and it's led to a bunch of broken wood. But yeah, so if he could add that third pitch, I mean, game over. Do we have any cause to concern with that foot injury that he had towards the end of last year? I mean, I guess there's always cause for concern. You know, foot injuries, especially because it's the foot he lands on when he winds up. Sure, we'll have to see how he looks, but he's had a lot of time this offseason to recover from it. I think they're just trying to work him back slowly to not rush him. I would assume once he's put back into games, he should basically be ready to go. Yeah, I would hope so too. They they cannot. I, I know this bullpen group is deep and it's and it's put together pretty well as we fleshed out here so far. But they don't want to lose him with injury. They they he was remarkably healthy as a twenty three year old last year, uh, despite how hard he throws, the amount of torque he puts on his arm. There were no issues at all with Andres Munoz last year. He maybe ran a little bit of gas in the playoffs because they're relying on him a little bit too much, which could probably speaks to how they felt about the depth of the bullpen towards the end of last season. But they can't have, I mean, he's, he is the most important cog in this bullpen. He is the, you know, the fire extinguisher back there. I mean, any high leverage situation, he's going to be your guy here this, um, this 2023 season. And we mentioned it at the top. I mean, uh, I think anything outside of a top five reliever season across all of major league baseball is a disappointment for Andres Munoz. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's how good he was in 2022. We didn't even give the exact numbers on his slider, and we can do that real quick as we wrap up this part of the segment about Munoz. I mean, his run value against his slider was minus 20, negative 20 against the slider. You talked about it. There were plenty of times where he would throw nothing but sliders because he just said, okay, nobody's going to hit this. We saw it a little bit in the playoffs, to be honest, where he was just going way more sliders than fastballs. 
It's funny, he throws 103, but like you said, that pitch is almost just to change speeds, which is funny, a pitch for the sole purpose of being, you know, something to mix a different pitch in is 103 miles an hour. But that slider, you said it's one of the three to five best sliders in all of baseball. And there's no reason it shouldn't continue this year if he's healthy. No, not at all. And it grades out stuff plus does really like his slider uh, for how it's shaped last year. It's the second best slider on the team behind, well, you could probably guess who. (laughs) I would say that's probably Matt Brash. Yes. (laughs) His slider is half decent. Let's put it that way. Half decent as Chris kind of detailed for us. Opponents, as we wrap this up, hit 164 against Andres Munoz's slider last year. That should say just about all it needs to say. This guy, we've said it a million times now in this segment, We'll say it one more time. That slider is absolutely ridiculous. Another guy that has a good slider, Paul Seawald. He's the second guy that we'll break down in this segment. And just to kind of preview it, we're going to do full breakdowns on Munoz and Seawald here because they're two of the three main options out of that bullpen along with Brash. And then we're just going to keep it kind of flowing and a little bit shorter for the rest of the guys and make just a couple of key points. But Paul Seawald, last season, 267 ERA, 264 XERA, 388 FIP, a whip of 076 in 65 appearances. It's funny, TJ, he was more effective in 2022 than he was in 2021 by the numbers, but his two seasons were totally different in terms of the results he got. Last season, in the 2021 season, it was all about strikeouts. And I mean, his fastball was so good, despite only being thrown about 93 miles an hour his first season with the Mariners. It was all that fastball. Um, and he struck out nearly 15 guys per nine last year. It was about limiting hard contact. I'm, I'm not sure which Paul Sewell I like better. Honestly, both were remarkably effective, but there were times Lyle last year where Paul Sewell's coming into the game and you know, the ball's not even leaving the infield. There's like three months in a row last, I think the middle three months of last year where you send Paul Sewell out there, the ball literally is not leaving the infield. That That's how confident you were in, in his ability to get limit hard contact and get outs. Yeah, his ground ball rate last year was just under 31%. And that was the second highest rate of his career dating all the way back to 2017. Yeah. In 2021, this guy was striking out 14 and a half batters in terms of his K per nine rate. It was all about the strikeouts. Yeah. But he transitioned away from it. I'm, I've never been able to pinpoint exactly why that is and how it drastically changed so much. Uh, I, I, just don't know sustainability. He did get hit harder as a result of it. He gave up, you know, he got he hit like he got barreled quite a bit more with um with 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 that approach. I you mm-hmm. know, I pretty I I like what his approach became. I thought it was a little more sustainable, even if he kind of faded a bit down the stretch. I think he really just ran out of gas down the stretch run of the season last year, and his location also slipped a lot, which didn't help him a lot. But when he does locate, I mean He's really hard to hit. That's really all you can ask for. Oh, he's incredibly hard to hit. He does it from both sides of the plate, too. I mean, the Mariners most likely will not have a lefty in this bullpen to start the year for the second season in a row. But it's now been proven in today's day and age of baseball, you don't necessarily need need a guy throwing baseballs out of his left hand if you have relievers that can get lefties out. I mean, we saw that with Eric Swanson last year. He had reverse splits. But both... Munoz and Paul Seawald have the reverse splits too. Now, Seawald's good against everybody, 
but lefties hit just 167 against them. They OPS just 589 against them. And they just don't hit the ball all that hard against them for the most part. Now, a little bit harder than they did in 21 because, again, there was more contact made. But it's not like they're hitting them all around the yard either. No, and, and the, the the hitting down the yard around the yard thing for Seawald really was just like a last month thing. wasn't wasn't an all season thing, which is is something to be confident about. You know what gives me confidence in Paul Seawald, Lyle? Besides the fact that he he is not lo- he doesn't didn't overall for the season locate well. He was actually one point below average in terms of uh, in terms of location. So to complement to our listeners, as I'm going to explain the stat. Um, I mentioned Stuff Plus, which measure, measures the pure, pure unadulterated stuff coming out of the, the the right or left hand of a pitcher in terms of velocity and a bunch of different other factors. Location Plus rates how he locates relative to the league average and puts it on a 100 scale. His Location Plus was one point under league average. Not, uh, not great, so slightly below average in terms of placing pitches where he wants them. However... Do you know, Lyle, he has the best pure stuff plus on the team? The entire entire team, Paul Seawald, has the best. I would have always guessed it was somebody like Brash, maybe Munoz, maybe Luis Castillo, but no, it's not. It's Paul Seawald. That gives you a little bit more room for error. So w- when you're pitching out of the bullpen, if your stuff is that good uh, relative to, to who you're throwing it to at the plate, I mean, th- it just gives you more confidence. You're like, well, he's old. He doesn't throw very hard. Well... The results are speak very well, and the and the metrics really like his stuff. It is remarkable what the Mariners have done with him, because this guy's career was basically over before putting on a Mariners jersey. But all of a sudden, he comes to Seattle. The Mariners tell him, look, you've kind of been a ground ball pitcher most of your career. Our data shows that if you throw way more sliders, and if you throw your fastball up in the zone compared to down in the zone, you can be way more effective. In the last two years, Paul Seawald's been one of the better relievers in baseball. And it's been just an unbelievable turnaround in the guy's career. If we look back to his uh, his his Mets days, let's see here. We'll, we'll expand a little bit. Really, you're right, did not throw his sweeper as much. You can just see from, let's look at his last full season in New York in, in 2019. He threw his sweeper, which is also a slider, 18% of the time. His first season with the Mariners. 41%. Throw your best pitches, please. That's all we ask. And driveline enforces that a ton. Now, I don't know if Seawalt's worked at driveline a bunch or not, but that is now a theory that is very much implemented in baseball. That doesn't matter if your best pitch isn't your fastball. Your best pitch is an off-speed pitch or a breaking ball. Throw it more. It gets guys out, which is pretty cool. And, and Seawalt does a lot of that. Now, I have to say this. Paul Seawald has started to kind of uh, traject downward toward the end of the year, two seasons in a row. He has shown signs of fatigue two seasons in a row. I think the Mariners have to do a little bit of a better job managing his workload throughout the course of a season. I think they've got to find some way to implement more rest days, not enter him in so many high leverage situations like they did in 21 and 22. Not never, of course. He's going to be one of the... Most de- mo- one of the relievers you depend on the most on this team, maybe the third most behind Brash and Munoz. But you can't have them tailspinning at the worst time of the year in the playoffs because that kind of happened in 2022. And it happened a little bit in 2021 toward the end of the year too. So 
I just hope this season they can find some ways to get him some extra off days. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I, I think the biggest thing you mentioned there is the the not-so-high leverage. So we'll see. Mariners play less one-run games this year. Maybe Jared Kelnick keeps hitting, uh, and they score a lot more runs and play in a lot less one-run games. That's not something they'll have to worry about, and they, it can be a little bit of a uh, little bit of lower stress. But it could also be on Paul too. I, uh, you know, he appeared in he appeared in quite a few games last year, but uh, so overall he appeared in sixty five games, which is a pretty normal amount for a reliever. So you could say, hey, Paul, maybe prepare yourself a little bit better towards the end of the season. I don't know. He's also on the other side of thirty now, so that it's the that youthful energy might not uh, not might not necessarily be there anymore. Uh, for Paul Seawald. I'm still very confident in Paul Seawald's ability to be successful in the Mariners bullpen. And hey, there's one key cog across successful post-2020 Mariners bullpens. It's that man right there. It is Paul Seawald. He, he, he's the glue that holds it all together throughout all of it. Yeah, I mean, the guys who were effective in the bullpens for the Mariners from 2021 to 2022 kind of totally changed between the two seasons, but the one key, the one consistent point, the one consistent guy in that bullpen was Paul Seawald. And we trust in Paul Seawald for the 2023 season. Okay, let's get on to our next relievers. And here's what we're going to do for the rest of the Mariners bullpen. So this does not drag on too long because we could obviously spend 15 minutes on each one of these relievers if we really wanted to, but we don't. We're going to pick one thing that stands out to us from the rest of the Mariners bullpen about what, what we're confident about, what we're excited about, or what we're concerned about looking at the 2023 Mariners season. So next up is Diego Castillo. Um, I get my, my one thing for me is that I just want him to locate better. That's really his biggest thing when I'm looking at Diego for the 2023 season. He's got a plus out pitch. His slider fares very well, run value-wise, stuff plus-wise. It, it, it's favored, um, but he just doesn't locate it. That's the issue. So if Diego wants to be a little bit more successful and a little bit more consistent and maybe have a bigger role in this Mariners bullpen in 2023, it's going to be the fact that he needs to throw his pitches for strikes and they need to be quality strikes as well. There were just times last year where he would lapse and the balls would get crushed or we would walk a ton of guys or there are times when he would be 100% on and he would be, you know, one of the three best relievers in the Mariners bullpen and a guy you could rely on to shut down the other team. Yeah, that's all valid. And look, he allows a lot of traffic on the base on the base pads a lot of the time, which if I had one gripe with him, it's this guy is infuriating to watch when he's got runners on base because it's not like he knows runners are on base, right? But he pitches as if nobody's on base. He takes his time getting to the plate. He's not checking the runner. Like guys run left and right on him as if it's as if he like doesn't care that there's guys on base. And he gives up all these free bags because guys steal on him left and right. So, yeah, the controlling the strike zone and controlling the base runners has to come down in 2023 or has to get a little bit better from Castillo's side. But quickly, the one thing that I would say I really like about him, at least looking back to last year, he had that one really bad month of May. His ERA was over 15. Honestly, the rest of his season was pretty good. 186 ERA in April, 15 ERA in June, 104 ERA in July zero ERA in August. I mean, for most of the year, this guy was really good. He's just had a, he just had one really bad blow up month in May that kind of tanked his ERA and his FIP for a lot of the year. In a bad outing against the Braves. 
and that. Yeah, and his his <laughs> September ERA was over five. So yeah, he had hills and valleys throughout his season. But again, if he can just control the zone a little better and please just every now and then step off the mound and acknowledge that there's a runner on base. Yeah, and these new rules, he, do they do these new rules benefit him so he doesn't have to worry about throwing over to first? I honestly don't know. Like, I don't know if now he's going to use that to his advantage where it's like, okay, I can step off a couple times or, or if he's just going to be like, yeah, I'll just throw it. I'm not going to look over. I hope that's not the case because again, he can be really good, but he's just got to control base runners better. Okay. One can, yeah, I was Go going to say here, I think I already said my concern, but I, I want to back it up with a number stuff. Plus I'm going to go back to it again. Does not like his sinker, which he throws to complement his slider hates his sinker. Rates it as a 79. That's 21% below league average for a sinker. So it's your second pitch. That's why that command is so important. Yeah, we'll see how he fares this year. Hopefully he fares well. But a guy who fared really well last year, Penn Murphy. First season in the big leagues, late round draft pick when he was taken out of college. All of a sudden, in his late 20s, he comes up and he's one of the key pieces in this Mariners bullpen. He was almost another Paul Seawald. I'll let you go first, TJ. What do you like best about Penn Murphy? Or what are you concerned about? I like how unique he is. He manages to be effective with a fastball that has a run value of minus eight while throwing it with middling velocity. All because of the unique angle it's at and the, the, the uni- unique angle he he throws it from. And it, it just like in the location of it. it. He does a marvelous job. And he's like, he's criminally underrated. His Savant page, um, it's not Andres Munoz level, but it's like a pretty decent Kool-Aid color, I would say. Like, in terms of everything you want to see from a pitcher, uh, look at average exit velocity, hard hit rate, uh, contact allowed, expected ERA and, and, uh, and contact allowed, expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, barrel rate, strikeout rate, walk rate. Every, everything a good reliever has, he does very, very well. Despite not having the, the velocity, the stuff is still just as good. Yeah, and you're putting it lightly with his velocity. I mean, this guy barely touches 90 miles an hour, but he's proving that it doesn't matter because for all the reasons you just listed, he misses bats, he gets strikeouts, and he's a really good reliever. I think you covered his fastball pretty well, so I'll take the other side of this here and say... What I really like about Penn Murphy is his second pitch, his slider. Run value of minus eight. Hitters just hit 125 against it last year. So a guy with two pitches, which is the norm in the bullpen, they're both really good pitches. What's really incredible for how good these pitches are, I mean, this is this is the story of pitching development at its finest at the major league level for the Mariners. This guy, Penn Murphy, didn't even prevent runs really in the minors. He was not very good at the art of preventing runs in the minors. And yet at the major league level, he does it spectacularly. And that's a hat tip to the Mariners organization of developing this guy at this level to be that effective. How about Lyle, a guy that we don't really know of that much and we're... Uh, expecting we're we're excited to see on television a little bit more because spring trainings aren't on TV. Uh, spring training's not on TV once the regular season starts, and that's Trevor Gott, the guy that signed, who was formerly a Brewer, signed as a free agent this off season, uh, coming off a season with the Brewers with a four one four ERA. 
an interesting guy, Lyle. What what do you like about him so much? Well, Jerry DePoto really raved about him when they signed him. He seemed to really like his peripherals. He seems to believe he can be a valuable reliever in this bullpen. His cutter stands out. I mean, it's probably been his best pitch since he added it. He's only had it a couple seasons. But in 2020, talking about run value again, negative two on that cutter in 2020. Run value was negative five in 2022. So another guy that, again, like hasn't had that pitch all that long as we're seeing so many of these Mariners starters and relievers develop new pitches as of late. Well, God's had it a little bit longer than one offseason. He's proved for it to be a really effective pitch. And again, like his basic numbers don't wow you. 414 ERA, 445 FIP last year. But he has every reason to prove that he's an effective reliever because he has the tools for it. He's just got to go out and do it now. Thing I like Trevor Gott is he's almost like a Paul Seawald clone, right? Uh, he has like a similar release point. He's got a similarly effective fastball that rates well with run value as well. Um, so it, it, that's like a that's a very quality thing. And he has two two off speed pitches with plus vertical with plus movement from Savant the way they track it with plus movement, which as a reliever. You, you really, really like. So I like that uh, when looking ahead for Trevor Gott. And his expected ERA was under three, which is promising. And also his um, his quality of contact he allowed was also very, very, very good. So I like to see that and what I'm looking forward to for Trevor Gott for this 2023 uh, season. Okay, final reliever in this bullpen. I guess he's not really a reliever, but he's going to be pitching out of the bullpen again for the Mariners. Chris Flexen. Marco Gonzalez likely going to be the fifth starter over him. Flexen profiles more in the bullpen. So of the things he brings, what do you like about Flexen? Do you know how good his slider is? His slider is incredible. It it is actually a really, 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 really good pitch. A pitch he introduced midway through last year. And it ends up being the fourth best slider on the team. Lyle, if you're asking me what I like, I like Chris Flexen's slider a lot. I think I think this actually makes him much more of a bullpen piece than people think, to be honest. I mean, what do we talk about? What do we talk about with Chris Langan uh, of what the Mariners like? I mean, they love like these these sliders and they love, you know, he's not really the fastball profile, I guess, but this, the, the pure slider profile, the fact he has a plus plus pitch. Uh, out of the bullpen that he literally just picked up is is something I love. The fact that he can add that to the Mariners' bullpen. Did you know that hitters slugged 058 against his slider last year? That's pretty incredible. I have a better stat for you. Did you know in 183 pitches, which is a minuscule amount over the course of an entire season, his slider had negative nine run value? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, we can see exactly why of those two starters between Flexen and Marco Gonzalez, why they put Flexen in the bullpen. Because none of Marco's stuff really profiles for him to pitch in relief. Flexen, he can get away with it. And if you want to transition to something that I like about Flexen, if we're going to get away from his slider, he's got a good changeup too. In fact, his changeup, for the most part of his career, has been his most effective pitch. I mean, look just back at 2021. Talk about the negative run value on a slider. You get a negative nine run value on that changeup just two years ago. So he has pitches that can play in this bullpen. Who's going to trade for him? Who's going to do yeah. it? 
I got to be honest with you. I'm not really sure I want to see Flexen get traded. And the reason I say that is because the Mariners have just been desperately, desperately searching for depth like this forever. Since DePoto took over the reins just before 2016. So you have those five starters and you have Flexen and you have some of the minor league guys. I don't know. I like having that depth because if there's an injury, you can plug Flexen right in. I think you would have to be blown away. I think Jerry thinks along the lines as you. I think, you know, you're probably looking at a more impact bat, right? That's probably what you would want, which you're not going to get an impact back for Chris Flexen. But if somebody makes you an offer too sweet to refuse, you're not going to, you're not just going to say no. But I do get the premise of where you're coming at. I just, I think it's incredible that one half season of one pitch essentially makes Chris Flexen incredibly valuable to the Mariners and untradeable. Because if he didn't have the slider, would we be sitting here saying he needs to be in the bullpen and staying on this roster? Probably not. Probably I mean, not. Where, where does he is, is he on the same level as Marco without that pitch? Because I mean, that's what for some of the way he pitched uh, last year. I mean, it was not too different from Marco. Yeah, it's true. So they would be on more even tiers if he didn't have that slider. And and look. I agree. If they got some ridiculous offer for Chris Flexen for a real impact bat, yeah, you make the trade. But if it's going to be, it will give you a bench piece with some speed and some half-decent defense in exchange for Chris Flexen, a guy who the team who would try to trade for him would have every implication and, and intention of plugging into their rotation. No, I have no interest to trade him. And the Mariners already have, uh, will project to have three of those guys on the bench already. So, Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, Chris Flexen pitching out of the bullpen is essentially the last guy and the long reliever I am totally okay with. As we kind of wrap this up, this Mariners bullpen, man, it's looking good for 2023. It was great in 2021. It was great in 2022. It is hard to keep the sustainability in that bullpen, but they've got the arms to do it. So we're going to sit back and watch this thing unfold in 2023. Okay, let's get to our listener question this week. And I think it's kind of a fun question. So we prepared for this before the start of the show. I want to get the name right of who sent it in. It was a question from Jude Wilburn. So shout out to him for the question. He said, would love to see an AL teams tier list, contenders, playoff teams, playoff hopefuls, and the gutter or something along those lines. So TJ, you and I ranked our tiers for American League teams. We did not tell each other how we ranked them before the show started, but I'll throw it to you first. How are you ranking these AL teams in terms of tiers? Uh, should I go tiers first or tiers and teams? Go tiers and teams. Okay, cool. So Lau and I, I think, went through a different thought process of how we're ranking this teams. I wanted to have a little bit more fun with it. So let's just start off with the top tier, the fuck off tier, which is the Astros, because they can just 100% just fuck off. All right, they're they're alone uh, at the top in the American League. I don't think anyone really is necessarily that close to them right now, even despite losing the likes of a of a Justin Verlander. Okay, my next tier is hates the Astros, which is the Yankees, Mariners, and Blue Jays. I think the upside talent on those teams, uh, the pitching depth of the Mariners, the Yankees, they were you know pretty good last year. They signed Rodon. I know he's hurt, but. There's just more upside there when you have Cole and Rodon in the rotation and you have Aaron Judge in your lineup. The Blue Jays talent across the board for for really the most part. So that's the, the tier I put that in. The next tier below that is slightly below 
slightly below what? Well, slightly below everyone else. Um, and that is the Guardians and the Rays, where it's just eh, little capped, mostly because they they don't necessarily spend a whole lot of money. A little bit more on the mediocre side is my next tier. Orioles, White Sox, Twins, Angels, Rangers. I think the Orioles could come back down to earth a little bit. I still don't believe in their pitching at all. They made little no effort to upgrade their pitching staff over the offseason. And there's not, a, I mean, besides Grayson Rodriguez, not a totally loaded high, like high upside minor league pitching um organization off the top of my head I don't believe and especially not in the big leagues there's just not there's that upside is not there for the Orioles and then the other teams I think self-explanatory White Sox Twins Angels Rangers fully mediocre is the Red Sox Royals and Tigers teams that seem stuck in whatever perpetuity they're in uh my final tier is Vegas baby and the A's are all alone in the Vegas baby tier I give you an A on that list, and I give you an A-plus for the names of the tiers. You did a good mm-hmm. job with that one. Okay, so my list, it's not that different from yours. I think my first three tiers were exactly the same. My first tier is Powerhouse. I put Astros even after losing Verlander. I said if the Yankees didn't already have all these injuries piling up, with the addition of Rodon, maybe I would have thought about putting them in that top tier. But with the injuries, I said no. Then I have the contenders category, Yankees, Mariners, Blue Jays. Again, they can all compete for an AL pennant, but they're not as good as the Astros. Playoff teams, Guardians, Rays, they should get into the postseason. I don't really think they're World Series contenders, although to be fair to the Rays, they did have a lot of injuries last year. I guess we'll see. Noisemakers, I said Rangers and Orioles, they could fight for a wild card spot. Just not good enough is my next tier. I have the Twins, White Sox, Angels, and Red Sox. So we differ a little bit on these tiers where I lumped those four teams together. I think you had the Red Sox a little bit lower. And I basically said with those teams, they all have some really talented pieces of their roster, but as a collective unit, it's just not good enough to sustain over a full year or really get into the postseason. Rebuilding Tigers and Royals. Look, there's reason to be interested in those guys. They have young pieces that are exciting. They are rebuilding, but they're going to be well below 500. And like you, my final tier, which I titled, absolute disgrace to the game of baseball, the Oakland A's. At least they have a good stadium. Oh, a great stadium with, with letters falling off the roof. You've got like six inches of space to walk down the aisle, you know, 3000 fans a night at the game. Incredible. You were asking about content ideas for this podcast. We should take a group trip. To O.co before it closes. Oh, that would be great. And we just, and we just film for everybody. Oh, so here's here's us standing outside the stadium. Oh, but you're not allowed in until like an hour before the game because they like don't have enough workers to let people in any earlier. It it, it should be where we're one of us is we're we're sitting at our seats and one of us is sitting in one of the many empty seats like across the aisle and the the person's just sort of sitting there and there's music playing in the background and the seat breaks. <laughs> oh, that's going directly on all our social media accounts. But that was our listener question for the week. I just want to say this before we wrap this part up. Again, if you guys have listener questions for us, please like DM them to us on Instagram, on Twitter, you can email us. Like we want to take all your questions. So if you've got some, send them. We'll do one a week. No pressure. It's if if it's a good question, you'll get featured. We promise. All right, let's close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. 
what is necessary is never unwise. All right, Lyle, what is on your mind today? I've just been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks. I didn't talk about this on the last show because I was talking about Anthony Richardson. But like a week and a half ago, I was broadcasting a Seattle U basketball game. And I don't know if I told you about this part. So I learned when I got to the arena that the guy who was supposed to be my analyst and do color commentary got sick and couldn't make it. So they didn't have anybody to fill him or they didn't have anybody to fill in as a replacement. So I'm sitting there doing a TV basketball game on my own. And I'll tell you what, as anybody who knows anything about broadcasting or has ever called a game, TV basketball is not meant to do by yourself. I mean, it was, it felt borderline impossible to get through the game. I did the best I could, but you're supposed to have somebody to bounce ideas off and tee up for some analysis and and work off that. There is no rhythm or flow in any way whatsoever trying to do a TV basketball game on your own. If you're doing it on radio alone, you can do it because you talk a lot more and you fill most of the time. Man, on TV, that was like that was like nothing I've ever experienced. I think you should have just broken out dual personalities. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, what a shot! What a shot! The the creation in the corner, the step back ability over the stretched out hand. I mean. This this is shot creation you just don't see at this level. Oh. I I'd have to change my voice a few times. Maybe I can. Maybe I'll have to send Jeff Pass in a DM or an email saying, "Hey, like, how long did it take you to work on that Elmo voice and 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 learn a second voice?" And I'm just sitting there with the headset doing two different voices. Yeah, you can pull like a Gollum. Gollum? I might not know that from reference. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I, I saw those. I saw one or two of those movies a long time ago and don't remember mm. that much of it, so I might not mm. know the reference. It's disappointing. I know. It's disappointing. It, ta- and... it does take a lot of your time. I'll, I'll give you that break. It's like nine oh. hours. To, it's nine hours to get through the, the trilogy of movies, so I, I, I think I, I can give you a break there. But yeah, TV basketball, uh, difficult, mostly because the analyst is supposed to, like you said, talk about 80% of the time, and you're like, mm. no analyst. Yeah. No analyst. <laughs> Uh, my speak your mind also basketball related. I just like to congratulate the Sun Devils of Arizona state for making it back to the ASU invitational for the third time in five seasons, AKA Dayton, Ohio. What a city. What a city. (laughs) There's so much connection here. The fact there's two ASU alums on this podcast. You spent all of last summer in Dayton working for the Dayton dragons and Arizona state basketball should honestly buy a practice facility in Dayton because they're going there more often than not when they make the tournament. Yeah. Somebody joked, Oh, Bobby Hurley should buy a house there or a timeshare there. It's like, you think Bobby Hurley wants to leave Tempe or Scottsdale, Arizona to go to Dayton? Like, unless you're playing the games there, what in the world are you doing? The making the first four. Cause they're very, very good at it. Like the odds of making the first four are actually incredible. In a in a sport of 358 teams, you need to be one of, uh, for Bobby Hurley's sake, you need to be what one of four teams that mm-hmm. makes the the first four. One of so he would be eliminated from being the 16 seeds to make it. So he would need to be either the the 12 seed playing or the 11 seed playing at the first four. And somehow, some miraculous way. Three times in the last five years, they have managed to land in Dayton in this very niche niche spot of the NCAA tournament, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, 
And do we have much confidence in them to get out of Dayton? I, I've got my hesitancies. As our own friend said, Nevada sucks. So maybe. Yeah, except the entire reason ASU is even in the tournament and on their way to Dayton right now is because of the luck and miracle of a 60-foot buzzer beater against Arizona. Like, that ball doesn't go in. They're not in the tournament. No, dog. Dayton willed that ball into the bucket. <laughs> Dayton really is did. calling. Maybe ASU generates them business, and they just beg for the Sun Devils to be there or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's ridiculous that they're back Maybe they, Are there a lot of Starbucks there? Like, so there's a lot of ASU online as well? I guess that could be. I didn't notice that many Starbucks, although well, I refuse to drink Starbucks. So you I as, to pay a, close as attention. a constant frequenter of Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess we'll see how it goes. I mean, look, ASU got in. We'll at least get to watch him once. And I guess we'll hope for the best. But they're back in Dayton. They are back in Dayton. So am I. Okay. I think that just about wraps up this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know the drill. If you want to listen to the full podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google. If you want to watch us on video, full video podcast is on YouTube. If you want to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts, at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 